Welcome to Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed, a bi-weekly podcast in collaboration with the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, focusing on expert interviews that explore the insights, habits, and expertise of individuals both in and outside of medicine. My name is Dr. Kara King, and I am your host. And hello, everyone. I hope you all are having a fantastic September and enjoying a bit of this beautiful fall crisp air. Now, we have an incredible guest on our show today coming in from Boston, and that is Dr. Louise King. Louise is an assistant professor of obstetrics, gynecology, and reproductive biology at Harvard Medical School, as well as a surgeon within the Division of Minimally Invasive Gynecologic Surgery at Brigham and Women's. Now, Louise's history is truly fascinating in that in her previous life, before medical school, she obtained her law degree at Tulane Law School. Now, this training has given her a truly unique and powerful perspective into really critical aspects of gynecologic surgery, things like reimbursement discrepancies in gynecology, as well as gender salary pay gaps, and outcomes of low-volume surgeons. In part one of this two-part series, Louise opens up about what led her to switch careers from law into medicine, the importance of critical thinking, and ethical considerations about disclosing volume to our patients. We hope you enjoy. So I am so excited to have Louise King on our episode today of Unscrubbed. She has been a well sought after guest for so long. And so Louise, welcome and thank you so much for your time this afternoon. Oh, thank you. I'm honored to be here. The Kings are uniting. The Kings squared. <laughs> I know. We've arrived. <laughs> We're sisters. We really are. It just feels right. It's so true. <laughs> I agree. So Louise, I want to start out by talking about your background a little bit. So you have an incredibly unique background in that you came to medicine from law. Is that right? Yes, I uh, tell my students the road less traveled is is a lot of fun. So I went to law school first after getting a degree in French literature, which was really lucrative degree. Um, you know, there's tons tons of job opportunities for le- French literature experts. You make a lot um, of money. So then in I that, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so then I went to medical school. No, then law school. Sorry, my mother was a lawyer, so I just followed her tracks and found myself in Louisiana and then in Texas working on uh, constitutional law mainly. And I really loved it, but I was desperately frustrated when I was working in Texas. I was running a pro bono clinic and we had so many women coming into the clinic who just had legal problems mainly because of things that were downstream from not having healthcare or not having access to reproductive choice or whatever it might be. And so I decided to come back into uh, medicine so that I could speak more directly on issues that affected women as it relates to their health and how it interacts with justice issues and and issues of, of just being able to live your life the way you want to live it. I love this. And I love hearing about kids who follow the jobs of their parents. I think about this a lot. I have three kids and I'm always wondering like how much am I messing up my kids' lives by working all the time <laughs> and like being a good role model for them. I think about this. And so I'm wondering how much did your mom include you in her job growing up? Like were you part of that life at all or what appealed to you about law initially? Yeah, we, yeah, we all carry this guilt as moms and, and maybe we shouldn't carry this guilt. My mom was a single mom. My dad's great. But my mom raised me for the most part and on her own. And um, my, my dad is actually in the entertainment industry. He's a wonderful, wonderful person. He was on location a lot. He was all over the place. And my parents were separated. And, you know, the, tradition, the, the story of divorced kids. So I was deeply involved in my mom's work. Uh, I did all, when she had her own law practice, I typed up all of her uh, stuff. That was my 
weekend evening job. I'm a really fast typist. Spent a lot of time at her office. You know, really saw her work really hard and was inspired to work as hard. And you know, her parents were immigrants from Ireland, and they worked equally hard, just not at professional jobs. So there are plenty of kids out there who are seeing their parents work. I always find it kind of interesting that we all feel guilty. I mean, most families have parents who work. You know, we should be working. That's what life is partially about work. Right. Mostly about fun. <laughs> right. No, you're right. And I, I appreciate those words. And you're right. Even though it makes sense when we theoret- theoretically think about it and there's papers that kids who live in a household that's pa- that whose parents work, you know, they're oftentimes, I don't know, what is it, happier or more productive or, or things like that. Mm-hmm. Positive outcomes, right? So yeah, I appreciate, you, I appreciate you saying that as well, though. It's true. So when you were practicing law, did you have a sliding door moment? Like, was there a certain, I don't know, interaction with one of your clients that, that, that something went off where you said, you know, this, this, isn't, this isn't the path I'm supposed to be taking. I wish I did. I, I don't have a great one of those, but it was just a, a sort of a mass effect of that many people coming in all, you know, I was running these pro bono clinics all around Dallas and uh, they were award-winning clinics. They were wonderful. I'm just like, we have to do CME. Lawyers have to do CME, but they also have to devote a certain amount of time to free, free legal aid. And Typically, corporate law firms sort of bundle that all together and make one person do it. And so we would have um, clinics where the, that one person could show up and do a lot of good work at, at once. And all the people coming in the door were women. I'm going to lose my house because of my medical bills. I've got another kid coming. I didn't plan for it, but I had no access to contraception. I don't know how my body works and I can't even you know, figure out what's even going on. You know, I mean, <laughs> that level of conversations. And I just got really frustrated and I can't, it, there were a couple of people who just encouraged me to consider going back. Uh, my grandfather was a surgeon and his father before him in Ohio, in a small town called Alliance, Ohio, rural surgeons. And I was really inspired by my grandfather's work. He donated a lot of his time in terms of the medical care that he gave and he encouraged me to go back and, and it's like, you should be a surgeon. So, okay, I'll give it a shot. And see if I could combine all these things together. I originally went in thinking I would do family planning or something like that, given my interests. And then I saw all these problems brewing in the arena of gynecologic surgery that I felt compelled to go in a slightly different direction. It's such an interesting marriage. It is so incredibly powerful. And I can imagine when you were practicing law, right, you're, you're thinking analytically about all these different questions and problems and a really you know, deep and thoughtful way. And I'm sure that directly transcends to, to medicine. Is that right? Yeah. I'm, I think my critical thinking skills have, have served me very well. A lot of people, my husband included, tells me that I, I think differently. But when I hang out with my lawyer friends, they totally get the way that my mind works because you get trained in it. There's an actual method that you're trained in in law school. Actually, at, the, at my old hospital at BIDMC in Boston, we introduced a whole program on critical thinking, trying to bring that method of analysis into medical education because I think we don't do enough critical thinking. But, but it's becoming more and more of an important thing. Like when people talk about cognitive biases and that anchoring and stuff like that, that's all part of a legal curriculum to, to really go through logic and fallacy and that kind of thing. So it translates really well. I love that too. So 
with that curriculum, what a great idea to actually integrate that into medical and surgical education. Did you integrate that at the residency level or how did you integrate that in your previous institution? A bunch of people were involved in this. It definitely wasn't just me. Um, and it was an entire didactic curriculum that was put together to highlight through case-based learning how we engage in cognitive biases. So, I mean, the classic example is you go into the ED and you see a patient, they present with certain characteristics and you anchor onto one thing and you're just totally blinded. You end up with blinders on and you forget to check the pregnancy test and don't realize they're pregnant or whatever it might be. Right? That's the classic OB example. We've all done that, right? But it's just important that another way of thinking about this in some of the current parlance is thinking fast or thinking slow, if you've read Kahneman's book. So thinking fast relies on bias to get you to an answer quickly, which is super important, especially in surgery where we have to like move quickly and we create muscle and thought memory so that we can move quickly through difficult situations. But especially when you're creating a plan for a patient or working up a differential diagnosis, or even thinking about how we're approaching populations of patients and trying to address our biases, that's when we have to think slow. We have to step back and really pinpoint what the biases are and come through and figure, you know, did I do every single thing that I should be doing in this stepwise logical progression? From a legal perspective, that translates into, did I address all of the precedent that exists that govern this body of an area of law? Um, how can I think outside that box, but still be consistent with the law that exists before. You're blowing my mind. And I feel like I want to spend 60 minutes on this topic. But my gosh. <laughs> it's cool stuff. It's really fun. Law school's fun. Everybody should go and just right? do that in there. In their spare time. <laughs> exactly right. But, you know, I'm thinking about, right, like a PGY-1, going to the emergency room, evaluating a patient, when you're talking about slow thinking versus fast thinking, at least for me, everything was slow. My intern year, like my entire brain lived there, right? There was no synapses for anything. And so really being able to know when to think fast, when to think slow, as those synapses are building, that's really the sign of an expert, right? Like knowing where to spend your time. And that, I mean, you're right, that that devotes, I mean, you should be devoting training to that and a thought process about around that. And I, I've never been taught that before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great example of how when you start off, you're super slow and that's good. And, and, it's important for us as attendings to remember is we all have the story of the intern coming up with the, you know, full differential and reorienting the whole team to the right thing, right? So we need the slow thinkers. And that's why academic medicine is so beautiful, by the way. And I think actually an exceptional way of delivering care because we have everybody learning and then looking at everything in such a big way. Um, but you can see how resident as teacher programs would work really well for cognitive thinking too, because you identify your slow thinker and then you help to train them to go fast, but you remember that you still need to think of the slow. And you're also bringing me back to my first year of fellowship with Ted Lee when I used yeah. to operate with him. That man is like a magician, right? He can get through a stage for yeah. endo case and you don't even know what happened. Like there's this planes that open up and all the things just look like they happen. And when he used to let me operate in my very first few months, he'd be like, you're working on a PC from like 1980. He's like, we need to get you up to like 2020. <laughs> I was like, okay, I know. I'm a little bit slow here, <laughs> but it's true. He great analogies. I love him. His way of thinking is just awesome. I know. And I'm East Coast. So he, I mean, he says it right the way it is. And I very much react well to that. So I, I know I adore him too. <laughs> He's amazing. Yeah. 
Oh my gosh, Louise King. I feel like I'm on just treasured borrowed time with you. I, I'm telling you right now, I need to have you back on the show and I haven't even started okay. yet. <laughs> All right, friend. So the topics I really want to dive in today are surrounded about surge in volume as it relates to ethical context. And then I want to dive into your recent publication about double discrimination that um, was recently published in The Green a few months ago, which has blown many people's minds. So starting with surge in volume, you know, once in practice, most general OBGYN physicians devote only about 15% of their entire practice to surgical gynecology, which is just mind-blowing when you think about it. That's like, what, one to two days a month. So t yeah. talk to me, Louise, why is this a problem? Well, it, it's important to note that we always planned it this way. So when OB and GYN merged together and all the surgeons who were training in general surgery and then specializing in pelvic surgery were merged in as gynecologic surgeons, the whole plan was for surgical volume to decrease, surgical training to decrease, and surgical volume to decrease, including and up until the 1970 reforms that created Gynonc, REI, and MFM. There was still this understanding that, that gynecologic surgeons would do that as sort of a secondary purpose to their obstetrical volume and purpose. And that probably made sense in the 70s, right? thinking about what people were doing back then. But as gynecology has advanced and we've all come to be much more talented and doing these laparoscopic surgeries that are really pushing the boundaries, obviously that level of, of surgery isn't going to be enough. The 10,000 hour rule, I know it's been debunked, but it's still a good way to think about this. If you're just not doing something very often, you're not going to consistently be able to do it well. There might be exceptions to that. Somebody who's been operating all their life might be able to pull back a little bit and do less and still continue with the same skill set and same skill level. And there might be outliers who can operate only 15% of the time and still reach some real upper echelons of ability. But on average, people are not going to be able to pull it off. And so what we see when we, through multiple studies, have reviewed the literature about complications is the complication rates are higher um, for gynecologic surgery than they are for other surgical disciplines because of the slow volume. And then even the people who accept that to be true and want to push their gynecologic volume forward can't do so realistically because of these billing issues, right? They're pushed to do more obstetrics by their hospitals, by the bottom line, just to keep the lights on. It's, it's not a nefarious purpose. I mean, we have to keep the lights on, but by doing so, they're really decreasing the amount of time they're in the OR loss of muscle memory, having to reorient yourself to that environment, the OR and the unique culture there, et cetera. So it's definitely a problem. And when you word it the way you just worded it, like this would never be acceptable for non-surgical fields, such as, let's just say, right, a concert musician or an athlete or anything else that requires some type of technical skill, right? Like if you're playing the piano once a month, that's probably not going to be enough to get you where you want to be. Or sport teams, right? Practicing once a month for their soccer team isn't going to get, get you to where you want to be. So it's interesting that as surgeons, we have the mentality that, that that's okay when our hands are actually directly impacting people's safety and lives. Yeah, and I, I don't, I think most people don't think it's okay. I mean, most residents come to me dismayed and are not okay with it um, and are concerned about the level of skill that they have when they graduate and what are they going to do in practice. Remember, this was created, this idea that gynecologic surgeons, unique among all surgeons, those treating 
women or persons who have uteruses, that idea that they would be trained for fewer years and have less volume originated at a time when women couldn't vote, couldn't own property. It, it was a very different time when that originated. And it's reflected in the historical documentation around it and the language that's used. Can't quote it off the top of my head, but there's a lot of misogynistic language in all of the original documentation and, and letters that were sent around about things at that time. And then it's persisted up. I mean, it's now we live in this system, so it's very hard to rock the boat. It's very hard to want to change something from inside. It's also, I think, very difficult. And I really have deep sympathy for all the wonderful OB-GYNs out there who are doing the best that they can. And when I'm writing that this is not sufficient, I think people take it personally. And I understand why they take it personally. But it is not at all meant as a personal affront to anybody because I know everyone's doing the best they can within the system that we have. But if we all sat down together as a massive group of OB-GYNs and said, what system will we design for our patients? Take, throwing money out the window, throwing everything else out the window. What would we, do? we want for our patients? We would all want our patients to have high volume surgeons. I know we would. And there have been some great survey work done about this where we've asked OB-GYNs who they would refer their own family members to. And of course, they ref would refer to um, higher volume surgeons. So you know that to be true, but it's hard to, you know, it's, an, it's very personal. You know, when you start talking to people about this, they get very upset. Right. I understand why. Again, beautifully put, right? I mean, we've devoted our entire lives to this calling of being an OBGYN. And in your papers, you eloquently state how OBGYN is such a really unique field and that we care for the depth and breadth of these, again, you know, persons with people with uteri. And and it um, it does, it feels personal, right? It becomes who we are. And to have that lens of maybe we're not doing the best that we could when personally we are doing the best that we can, it can, you're right, it can can come off a little bit different than the intention that, that, that it was originally written. I can see that. Right. And, and also, to a certain degree, we've failed all of each other. We've all failed to, to create a system that would allow everybody to excel, you know, so, so I can understand the frustration too. Right. High volume surgeons have better outcomes, less complications, less conversion rates, less, you know, less money spent in the operating room, the whole list of things. We all know this. It's not just with an OBGYN, it's across all subspecialties and fields. This is well, this is well documented. So with that in mind, from an ethical standpoint, do we have an ethical obligation to disclose accurate information to our patients regarding the surgical risks and alternatives for a low-risk surgeon? Well, I think so. <laughs> yes. And the Hastings Center paper that I wrote in 2019 was said so. That's another tough one for most people to swallow. It makes people really upset when I say that. I do practice what I preach. So if I am a low volume surgeon for something that someone comes to me for, which does happen, I explain that I'm low volume for this procedure. Um, typically, it's a procedure that's pretty rare, so there aren't that many people who are high volume in it. But there will be in my town of Boston at least one or two people who are higher volume than me. And so um, I'll say I haven't done this before, or I've only done it once before. I feel I have a perfectly good skill set to do this. It's related to other things I do. I feel like 
I could do a great job for you. But you absolutely have the option of also seeing, and I will facilitate a referral to see so-and-so or so-and-so who does more than I do, if you'd like. And most of the time, people stay with me. Sometimes they ask for a referral. By doing that, I've clearly indicated to them that they have options. And, and that's the key part of informed consent. When we teach informed consent, it's about full, accurate information about risks and options that exist or alternatives. So we say, you know, we always do that quick uh, risk benefits alternatives and indications or whatever that right. moniker is, right? Mm-hmm. The key point there is should you have surgery at all, benefits? What are the risks? Why should you not have surgery at all or with me? Um, indications, you know, should you have it at all? And then alternatives. Um, and alternatives include referral. It's so true. And, you know, we've all seen that patient who's had procedure XYZ and they come to us either with a complication from that procedure or not knowing that they had other options. And you're right. It, I just, I always feel so bad for that patient and that they weren't fully disclosed all the different options that they may have. And I can appreciate what you're saying in that you're not saying that abdominal hysterectomies should never be done, right? There's low resource settings in rural areas and, and general OBGYNs are extremely important. And what you're really saying is that patients should just be counseled that there may be an alternative to the procedure that your specific provider can recommend. Is that right? Absolutely. So give it, taking a patient who needs a hysterectomy for a fibroid uterus in a urban, excuse me, in a rural setting where, you know, well-intentioned, fabulous OBGYN is available, but only does abdominal hist for that size uterus. They can have a wonderful conversation with this patient with whom they have an important relationship and explain, I can do it this way, but they, you could also travel and have it done this way. These are your options. A lot of times these patients will say, you know what, I'd prefer to stay with you, my trusted provider. A lot of times. There's some... Um, data on this, not that much, but we know from a common sense standpoint, many people are going to want to stay in their community and uh, access that option that's been given them by their well-known and well-trusted provider. I think one of the big problems is because we have so little training in gynecology and residency, that provider won't know that there actually is another option. So I get a lot of patients who self-refer to me because they've been told not I can do it this way, but other people might be able to do it a different way. But there is only one safe way to do it. In fact, recently I did a case where a woman had been, start, a, a laparoscopic hiss had been started and stopped because um, they didn't feel that they could do it by scope, but then they didn't do it open, not sure why. And then in the operative report, it said it would be unsafe to proceed laparoscopically. And then this patient sought me out and I did her procedure laparoscopically. And I've had so many conversations with providers about these rules that people have out there in the community of nothing over 14 centimeters. Well, we all know that that's not true. Or um, you can only do an oophorectomy for an ovarian cyst that's over eight centimeters. I have no idea where that one came from, but I've seen that a lot too with a lot of women with oophorectomies. So somehow we've got to get better training about all the potentials that exist so that at the very least, um, our wonderful colleagues in specialty, but general practice can tell their patients, I can do it this way and I'm happy to take care of you, but you also can travel and have these other options if you want. You're exactly right. And I see a lot of patients who come to me with fibroids and their only recommendation was hysterectomy, right? These G0 patients when 
in reality, right? I go on and do a laparoscopic myomectomy. And I think about these decisions of if the, and it's usually it's a self-referral for me as well. And I think about these huge decisions for these patients where if they hadn't done their own research, that, I mean, they could have ended up with a hysterectomy and that would have completely changed the, the trajectory of their life. And so again, just like you said, I firmly believe that everyone's doing the best that they can, but it's really, it's really up to our entire community of OBGYNs, just like you said, to train our residents early about, you know, options that are out there. Because I feel I, like, especially now, and I want to dive into this in a little bit as well, about patient advocacy groups, how they're doing an amazing job at advocating for themselves. And the social media push that they've had to get momentum has been amazing. But I also feel bad that we're putting the onus on the patients to do their own research, yeah. right? Like, I feel terrible that they're already under all this with the medical condition that they have to put the onus on them to then do all this extra research and advocacy. It just doesn't seem fair. Yeah, you've, you've hit on such an important point because what we're describing also is we're creating a system that promotes disparities in access because, of course, the patient advocacy groups are amazing. I, I work with a lot of them and I just am blown away by what they accomplish. But it shouldn't, the onus shouldn't be on them. But in addition, it takes actually a, quite a bit of savvy to be able to even find them. So there's a whole population of women who just don't have the access to this type of information, nor should the burden be on them. It's completely, frankly, unethical to to think that patients should be able to navigate an area that we've all trained for years just to be able to moderately understand. Um, and it's interesting because we're also circling back to our critical thinking discussion because in terms of training residents, anchoring on hysterectomy is the only option with a certain number of fibroids is a, a cognitive bias that we need to train people not to do. Exactly right. So in your paper about low-volume surgeons, you actually pr proposed a call to action. It was like a come to Jesus. Like, this isn't just like a commentary saying there's some things that could be improved. It's like, sweet Lord, guys, we need to come together and things need to change. So within that, what solutions do you envision to help close this gap? And this can be from both a, both a training perspective as well as surgeons who are out, out in practice right now. What kind of actions do you foresee that could help close this gap? So uh, I'll acknowledge at the outset that my paper glosses right over some of the incredible complexity around how our absurdly complicated medical system creates reimbursements. So at the outset, disclaimer. There's only so much but, you can put into a paper. <laughs> I'm with you. Yeah. I mean, there are only so many words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. They cap um, it. But with that said, if it, there's an adjunct to the paper that is the reviewer's comments to me and then my response is back, which is like 30 pages long. And in there, I explain that I'm not an economist and I'm not an historian, but I can still see that there's a problem and I can still define it and I can still call for change. So much of the time when I'm talking about this topic, I get frankly really tired responses back of, well, it's really complicated and you don't understand it. I don't really care if I don't understand it. It's a problem. We have to fix it. Or uh, something along the lines of, well, there's always been gender paid inequities in the United States and it's really complicated and has to do with women you know, taking time off to have families and all this other, I'm sorry, but crap. Hogwash, yeah. No, 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 no. We need to change this. This is a very clearly delineated problem that we see having incredible effects both for our patients and then all providers helping these patients, but also notably women providers helping these patients. We need to fix it. So ways forward. 
The original RVU system was established in the 1980s based on a study by the Harvard School of Public Health, my, my institution. <laughs> it was governed by a mindset that existed at that time, which was frankly discriminatory. And if you look at the way that valuations were created, anybody would agree. There's no dis debate about this, that it was discriminatorily in favor of uh, some disciplines and to the detriment of OB-GYN in general. And so OB-GYN in general, both the obstetrical and gynecologic arm, started off with one hand tied behind our backs, and we've been clawing our way up ever since. We've achieved some modicum of improvement. So if you look, there, were there have been changes. The two papers cited in my paper that describe disparities between gyne surge and urology note the billing in the 90s and in around 2015. And there's been not much change between the 90s and 2015, but there was some change before then and little bits of change here and there. But overall, the disparities still exist. And there's a lot of politics that go into creating those RVUs. But the vast majority of institutions use those RVU systems to set salaries and to create who's going to sit at the table to talk about OR time and who's going to sit at the table to talk about extra resource dollars for new centers or for research or whatever it might be, right? So those RVUs are evaluated differently in different institutions and you know it gets incredibly complicated. But at the end of the day, we're starting with one hand tied behind our backs and that percolates through to the salaries of gynecologists, but also to the resources that we have and our ability to get into the OR before 3 p.m. and certain big institutions, for example, which is my current problem. Oh my so, God, the struggle is real. It's true. Yeah, it's a real struggle and we all know it, right? But it doesn't really feel like a struggle unless you're only doing guide and search because if it's only affecting you once or twice a month, you don't notice it as much. So, hmm. so I think to some degree, our colleagues who are um, specialists in general OBGYN are like, well, it's a problem, but it's not a massive problem. Because, But for us, it's a massive problem. And for the women we serve who are trying to get into the OR sooner or whatever it might be, it's a massive problem. So solutions. I think that the 14th Amendment of the Constitution and various anti-discrimination provisions of the ACA, along with the Social Security Act, which governs the setting of RVUs, all contain various provisions that demand a reassessment of RVU set um, dating all the way back to that original study. In other words, we need to go back and fix the discrimination that initially existed to create equity. I believe that doing that does not fall under the purview of budget neutrality, which is a term that means that under the Social Security Act, as they set RVUs, we have to come to agreements with other disciplines. So if we take money from primary care and give it to surgery, we have to do it that way. We can't just increase surgery. Now, real pushback to that is it's insane that in only one area of budgetary spending of our government, do we have budget neutrality and it's healthcare. So... But putting that aside, <laughs> I think that my argument, because it's an argument based on a constitutional provision and based on discrimination, just bypasses budget neutrality ent entirely or should be legislated to do so. In other words, have one of our senators push forward some sort of legislation and I'm trying to work on draft legislation to just list to say, you know, this is not a matter of just setting RVUs. This is righting a wrong that happened in the past. The reason I want to focus on that as one potential way forward is because that would allow not only 
people like you and myself who are really devoted to GynSearch to continue to work in this field and not have to charge, what, $15,000, $25,000 for a surgery for all of these people who are working privately, but to instead continue to take insurance and be successful in our research and all of that to push our field forward. But also it will empower specialists and general OBGYN to say, hey, you know, I've I've got the hands. I can do these surgeries. I want to learn more. I'm going to devote a bigger portion of my work to this. And that's going to be supported within my hospital system or my group because it bills appropriately. So I feel like that would be the first step forward. From there, I would jump on the bandwagon with uh, Kelly Wright and all of her buddies <laughs> um, and, and advocate, and you, of course, and advocate <laughs> for Kelly tracking. Wright. Yeah. yeah. So... Um, I mean, your program has demonstrated that tracking can be very successful. I recently uh, proposed it at, at our program in a talk because it's obviously, I think, the way forward. But tracking in the residency would have to be mirrored by tracking for jobs. You know, so we would have to do some sort of tracking for jobs. And then the last part of that solution is, well, then what do we do for people in rural areas? And I've talked about this before, and I think sometimes people misunderstand me, but we should partner more with our general surgery colleagues to have cross-training, both because that way we would have better bridges between our disciplines and more collaboration. But also in rural areas, um, there are bunches of general surgeons training in C-section because there just isn't enough access to obstetrical care for C-section there. So we can have our emergency section. So we can cross-train that way and train them in tubal ligation and whatever it might be in ectopics and then train ourselves in appies and gallbladders and whatever it might be and bowel repair so that we can cover each other in rural settings where there is limited access to different services, but we could create more access. So interesting. Those are my thoughts. Yeah, no, I want to dive into so many of those things. And that is all for this episode of Gynecologic Surgeons Unscrubbed. Join us next week for part two of Louise King's incredible interview where she talks about the importance of appropriate reimbursement for gynecologic procedures and action items to help close these gaps. She also dives into difficulties in navigating the medical system for endometriosis care from the patient perspective. You definitely do not want to miss this episode. From all of us at the Society of Gynecologic Surgeons, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.